Growing in God's Word and learning how to take up our cross and follow Jesus. This is Crosswalk with Pastor Clay Stevens from Cross Culture Church in Raleigh. A near miss, a close is a good thing, right? But not in prophecy. There's an old saying, close only counts in horseshoes and hand grenades. Nowhere is that more true than when we're talking about prophecy. Have you ever heard or seen a fortune teller? Their predictions are usually so general, so vague, that you can make almost anything fit into their prophecy. Because of that, most people don't put much stock in fortune tellers. But what if you talked with someone who described future events to you with great detail and many specifics? If that person's predictions came true exactly as they said it would, that probably would cause you to listen very intently to anything else they had to say, wouldn't it? One of the great things about Scripture is that it gives not one or two vague prophecies. It gives hundreds, literally hundreds, of specific prophetic proclamations. I'm Rick Freeman. Welcome to Crosswalk. If you're joining us for the first time, we're glad to have you with us. We've been spending most of 2013 in a series in the book of Daniel, and today we come to an amazing portion of Daniel's prophecy. Now, the truth is, all of Daniel's prophecies have been amazing, but chapter 8 is really powerful. History is really his story. As you listen along, at times it may seem like Pastor Clay is taking us through a history lesson. And in fact, what he'll talk about today is historical. But what's really exciting is that when Daniel wrote these things, they were still out in the future. And what he writes about leaves us with no doubt that God is firmly in control. Thanks for joining us. Now here's Pastor Clay. A near miss, a close, is a good thing, right? But not in prophecy. Not in prophecy. When you're talking about prophecy, if you don't get it right, it's a done deal. Y- y'all remember, I think this was last year, year plus, I used to lose track of time, but um, not that I'll keep you two hours today, I don't lose track of time that fast, but uh, do you remember the guy that um, out in California, the pastor out in California, was last year, year before last, who predicted that the end was coming, and it was coming in the spring, April or May, or something like that. Do y'all remember that? And there was people even here in Raleigh were getting ready for that, and then that date came and went, and so he came back and said it was kind of a little bit of a miscalculation, and it was actually September that uh, Jesus was going to return, or the end was going to come, whatever it was his prediction was, and uh, of course that didn't happen either, and so the guy, you know, let's face it, he pretty much lost credibility uh, after that uh, point, and And well, he should have. There's an old saying, close only counts in horseshoes and hand grenades. Nowhere is that more true than when we're talking about prophecy. Listen, one of the great things, one of the great things about Scripture is that it it gives not, not one or two vague prophecies about some future event. It gives hundreds, literally hundreds of specific prophetic proclamations that there are plenty enough uh, critics and naysayers and stuff around that if the Bible gets even one wrong, remember it gives hundreds of these, but if it gets just one wrong, then the whole thing can be called into question. Quite honestly, it should be, right? Because we say that this is divinely inspired 
That is the word of God that is truth without any mixture of error. And so if there is one in there, then how much of any of it can you trust? Today, we enter enter into what I think is one of the most uh, exciting prophecies in in all the Bible. Not necessarily because of of what it says was going to happen, but because of how insanely specific and accurate Daniel was uh, as he gave this prophecy. Open your Bibles this morning. We're in Daniel chapter 8. Now, if you're new with us, if you're a guest, we've been working our way, um, as John prayed this morning, for so long. (laughs) Y'all catch that? (laughs) Through the book of Daniel. I love you, John. Um, Through the book of Daniel. I don't know if y'all have read this book before, but it's not really something you can rush through. You got to kind of take your time. With, uh, with this. But uh, we've been working our way through the book of Daniel. And so if you're here this morning as a guest, you, you know, please uh, understand you're, we're jumping, you're jumping right into the middle of something. But I hope that I can do a good enough job uh, with what we deal with today to, to give you some sense of understanding if, if you're not familiar with the book of Daniel. Uh, and to encourage you when you leave here and you're thinking, wow, this, is, this book is something, man. This, this, is, really, this is really something. But we're going we're gonna to begin in Daniel chapter 8. We'll be here for at least two weeks in Daniel chapter 8. Now, before we begin in Daniel chapter 8, there's something that we need to know that we don't know from just reading our Bible in our English translation. And that is this. The book of Daniel, when Daniel wrote the book, late 6th century BC, the book of Daniel was written in two different languages. Now, some of you may be saying, oh yeah, I knew that. The Old Testament is made in Hebrew and the New Testament in Greek. That's right, Old Testament written primarily in Hebrew, New Testament, and Greek. But I'm talking about specifically just the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel is written in, partly in Hebrew, the, the language of the Jews, and partly in Aramaic, which would have been the language of the Gentiles living in that part of the world in that day. It was, uh, it was also a Semitic language, but it, it, it was, had some similarities to Hebrew, but it was different. And uh, it was the language uh, that the Babylonian culture uh, would have understood and been able to, to understand, and, uh, and those to come would have been able to... So, so it's two different languages that it's written in. Well, that seems odd until we understand why he did it. Let me give you some examples. Beginning in Daniel chapter 1, verse 1, opening verse of the Bible. You with me so far? Daniel 1, chapter 1, through Daniel 2, verse 3... Daniel writes the book of Daniel in Hebrew. Why? Because that opening chapter, that opening section of the book of Daniel tells the story of the, of, the, of the Hebrews, the Jews, being carried off into captivity by the Babylonians. And then it tells the story of Daniel and his buddies taking this stand. Remember when they're, when they're ordered to eat the king's food? You remember way back in Daniel chapter 1, ordered to eat the king's food, and Daniel says, no, we won't, eat, we won't dishonor our God by eating the king's food. We talked about why that was. But he says, you're just going to give us water and vegetables, and we'll be stronger than those guys that eat all the rest of the food. And it, Daniel and his buddies, because they stood for their God, it gave God the opportunity to demonstrate his power through the lives of these people that took a stand for him. That message would have been a great encouragement to the Jews that had just been carried off into captivity. They've just been taken from their homeland. 
many of them taken from their families, never to see them again, carried off to a distant land, distant people, distant language, distant culture. And they could read about, hey, it's okay. Our God is not going to abandon us. Yes, he allowed us to be carried into captivity because of the rebellion of his people. And yes, this is not going to be easy, but we can stand for our God. We can stand with our God because he's going to stand with us. They wouldn't need it to hear that message. So Daniel writes it in Hebrew. But guess what? Beginning in Daniel chapter 2, verse 4, and running all the way through the end of chapter 7, he writes in Aramaic. He switches and begins to write in Aramaic. Why? Because chapters 2 through 7 record, give us a record of the Gentile. You guys understand what I mean by Gentile? Gentile basically means anybody that's not a Jew. Okay, that's what the term would be used for. Chapters 2 through 7 give us a record of the Gentile empires that would take up a significant part of the history of mankind. And so it was about the Gentile empires. It was about, you know, all those different empires that we've talked about. We'll talk some more about. Um, And and what happened to them and and what they did and all that kind of stuff. And so Daniel writes it in Aramaic because anyone could read it and and understand, okay, here's what he's saying. Here's what he said that his God says is going to happen. But then in chapter 8, verse 1, guess what happens? Daniel switches back and begins to write in Hebrew again. And he does so all the way to the end of the book. The rest of the book is written in Hebrew, which tells us that the rest of the message has something to do with the nation of Israel. That Daniel is writing prophetically, and we're going to, in the next few weeks, we're going to get way into into future uh, prophecy even for us. But what he's writing about has significance, direct, specific implications for the nation of Israel. Uh, Certainly we have talked about this before, but if you're new to cross-culture church, you may not have heard me explain this before. But it's important uh, to understand this. It's important for a correct interpretation of, uh, of the Bible. It's important for correct interpretation of prophecy. And that is to understand that God, ladies and gentlemen, is not through with the nation of Israel. We don't have time, obviously, to go into a lot of detail and talk a lot about it today. But beginning in Genesis chapter 13 and running through Genesis chapter 17, we find the basis for what is referred to as the Abrahamic covenant. It was a a, a covenant that God entered into with this man named Abraham. Entered into it with, you can go back and read Genesis 13 through 17. Entered into this covenant with Abraham and his descendants. Guess whose Abraham's descendants were? Are. The Jews. He entered into a covenant, and again, you can go back and read in the 13 through 17, I encourage you to do so, but you will find in several places there in Genesis 13 through 17, God says that this is going to be an everlasting covenant. Somebody tell me how long everlasting is. That's right. See, I knew y'all were sharp. Everlasting covenant. God says it several times. So even though Israel and the Jews didn't always keep the covenant, and they didn't, even though they weren't always faithful to the covenant that they made with God, God always was faithful. God always is faithful. And Jew or Gentile, aren't you glad that he is? That even when we are unfaithful, God is faithful. And so God enters into this covenant with with Abraham and with Israel, and it becomes this everlasting covenant. And so that means, as we come back 
to Daniel and where we're going in the future as we go through the rest of this book, that means that God is still dealing with the nation of Israel. He still has a purpose. He still has a plan. There's still this idea that they are his chosen people. Now, listen to me closely. Having said that, that does not mean that a Jewish person gets a free pass to heaven just because they're Jewish. Do you understand? It's not a free, uh, get out of hell free card because you happen to be born of Jewish ethnicity. All persons, all peoples, regardless of nationality or ethnicity, every single person must go through the blood of Jesus Christ. They must go through the sacrifice of God's Son in order to be redeemed and to enter into a relationship with God. No religion, no matter how sincere, no matter how devout, no religion is good enough to get you into heaven. I'm sorry if that's politically incorrect. I'm sorry if that doesn't mesh well with the mindset of the postmodern world in which we live. But God, there's no, there's no wiggle room here as far as God's concerned. Look at this. Uh, maybe some of you are familiar with this verse, uh, John chapter 14 and verse 6. Jesus said to him, would you say that with me out loud, please? I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Listen, can I just say this to you? And I, I, I am fully aware that that is an extreme, extremely exclusive statement. But can I just say this to you? If it's right, then, then he's the only way, and, and it doesn't matter what else you do or what, who else you believe in or how much you pray or bow down or give or, or, or attend. What, it doesn't matter. It must come this relationship with Jesus Christ. If it's not true, if there are multiple ways to get to heaven, then Jesus is not one of the ways. Not only is he not the only way, he's not any of the ways, because if it's not true, then Jesus is a liar. And he just claimed to be the only way. And if Jesus is a liar, then he's a sinner. And if he's a sinner, he can't be the sinless sacrifice that would pay for our sins. You understand? Uh, Acts chapter 4, verse uh, 12. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. So it doesn't matter. Jew, Gentile, everybody. As, as an old song or something goes, must go by the way of the cross. That's, that's just... All there is to it. But having said that, God makes it clear in his word, and we're going to see some of it uh, in the next several weeks, that he is not through with the nation of Israel. He still has a plan. So we're going to begin reading in Daniel chapter 8 and verse 1. We're going to cover about half of the prophecy today and hopefully the other half uh, next week. Daniel chapter 8, verse 1. The text is up on the screen as well. Um, but hopefully you have a copy of God's Word in uh, some shape, form, or fashion. Let's begin reading. In the third year of the reign of Belshazzar the king, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, subsequent to the one which appeared to me previously. He's referring to the one in chapter 7. I looked in the vision, and while I was looking, I was in a citadel, in the citadel of Susa, which is in the province of Elam. And I looked in the vision, and I myself was beside the Ulai Canal. And then I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, a ram, which had two horns, was standing in front of the canal. Now the two horns were long, 
but one was longer than the other, and with the longer one coming up last. I saw the ram budding westward, northward, and southward, and no other beasts could stand before him, nor were, was there anyone to rescue from his power. But he did as he pleased and magnified himself. Verse 5, while I was observing, behold, a male goat was coming from the west over the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. And he came up to the ram that had the two horns, which I had seen standing in front of the canal, and rushed at him in his mighty wrath. I saw him come beside the ram, and he was enraged at him, and he struck the ram and shattered his two horns, and the ram had no strength to withstand him. So he hurled him to the ground and trampled on him, and there was none to rescue the ram from his power. Then the male goat magnified himself exceedingly. But as soon as he was mighty, the large horn was broken, and in its place there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. A lot to get to here. Daniel chapter 8, and we read 1 through 8. The first thing we learn as we get into this text is that Daniel receives this vision in the third year of the reign of Belshazzar, which means, if you went back to chapter 7 in its opening verse, which means that it's now been two years since Daniel received that first vision. So I mentioned that just to say that sometimes we read the Bible, we read these accounts, and and, you know, we're just reading and reading, and it just, you would think sometimes, well, it, man, it's just, God's just saying stuff, boom, 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 all the time. Why don't he do that anymore? It's not like it was, you know, constant. It's been two years in Daniel's life. Two years, no doubt, that he has spent in, in prayer and meditation and, and fasting at times and just seeking God's face, because that was just, the, uh, that was just the, the way Daniel was. That was the way he operated. He was a man of God. And, and two years later, God comes and he begins to speak to him again. He gives him another vision. In the vision, we find out that Daniel is in Susa. Now, I don't think he's literally physically in Susa. It doesn't read that way. I think in his vision, he's in Susa, or uh, Shushan, as it's also sometimes called. Uh, now, Susa was a city about uh, 200 miles southeast of Babylon, where Daniel actually is at this time. As best I could tell, as best I could find, Susa had very little significance for the Babylonians. They, they didn't, it was there, but it wasn't, wasn't much significance to it. So when I, one of the questions I ask when I'm reading that is, well, why does God tell us that? Why does God bother to tell us that Daniel's in, in Susa? It seems like a detail that doesn't make a lot of sense until we get to the interpretation, or at least I think, until we get the interpretation, and we'll see that in a few minutes. But in Daniel's vision, he, uh, he lifted up his eyes, and he looked, and he, and he sees a ram. He sees this ram, and this ram uh, had, had two, ha- two horns, but one of the horns uh, came up a little bit later than the, than the other horn, but it grew much bigger. It was larger uh, than, than, the, uh, than its counterpart. It raised up, it has these horns, uh, it moves westward, northward, and southward, and no other beast, no other one could stand against it. As a matter of fact, as it says at the end of verse uh, 4, um, nor was there anyone to rescue from his power, but he did as he pleased and magnified himself. So the ram is the top dog. Sorry to mix my animal metaphors, but you understand. 
But Daniel's looking at this, and, and in his vision, hardly no sooner than this happens, then Daniel sees suddenly a male goat appear in his vision. It was coming from the west. Daniel mentions that it's, it's, not, even, that it's not touching the ground. Implication meaning it's, it's swift moving. It's moving so fast that it's like its feet don't even touch the ground. It's moving very, very swiftly. And he comes up to the ram. The, the goat comes to the ram. You with me? The goat comes up to the ram. Why don't y'all say that? The goat comes up to the ram. Making sure y'all are awake. Goat comes up to the ram, and there are basically uh, two hits. The goat hitting the ram and the ram hitting the ground. I mean, that's, that's it. It's just, it's one and done. I mean, I mean that, that's how Daniel sees it. It's just this, this rapid uh, conquering of the, of the ram by the goat. He just, he just takes over. And so then, so in verse 4, you had the ram magnifying himself. But now look suddenly, the end of verse 8, uh, or, or toward the end of verse 8, then the male goat magnified himself exceedingly, or towards the end of where we're reading. But the male goat magnified himself exceedingly. But then, no sooner does the male goat magnify himself exceedingly, the latter part of verse 8, but as soon as he was mighty, the large horn was broken. Remember the large conspicuous horn that, that he had? Suddenly it's broken, and in its place there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven, or, or towards the four directions of the compass. Or In other words... These four horns, they, they, they take over. What the world? <laughs> I mean, what the world? You got, you got rams, and, and uh, it's got two horns, but one horn is bigger than the other. And then all of a sudden, it's, it's great, and it's mighty, and it's powerful, it's top dog. But then there shows up this goat, and the goat smashes the ram, and the goat takes control. But it's got a big conspicuous horn, but as soon as it takes control, that conspicuous horn is broken off, falls off, and, and four other horns come up. Horns come up in its place. What in the world is going on? Well, uh, fortunately for us, God doesn't make Daniel or us wait very long for the answer. And he doesn't make us guess at what the answer is either. We're going to read in verse uh, 15, beginning in verse 15. So we're skipping 9 through 14. We'll pick that up next week because that's a different part of the vision. So 1 through 8 is the vision, but in 15 through 22, or about three, we get the interpretation of 1 through 8. Got it? When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, standing before me was one who looked like a man. And I heard the voice of a man between the banks of the Ulai, and he called out and said, Gabriel, give this man an understanding of the vision. So he came near to where I was standing, and, and when he came, I was frightened, and I fell to my face. But he said to me, Son of man... Understand that the vision pertains to the time of the end. Now, while he was talking with me, I sank into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. But he touched me and made me stand upright. And he said, behold, I'm going to let you know what will occur at the final period of the indignation, for it pertains to the appointed time of the end. Verse 20, the ram which you saw with the two horns represents the kings of Media and Persia. Verse 21, the shaggy goat represents the kingdom of Greece. And the large horn that is between his eyes is the first king. The broken horn and the four horns that arose in its place represent four kingdoms which will arise from his nation, although not with his power. So I said, God doesn't make us guess at it. He gets, he gets right to it, to the, to the interpretation of the text in which he gives. Daniel 
wants to know. He, he needs to know. I want to know what does this mean? Now, there's more to the vision. Like I said, we'll get to that next week. But Daniel wants to know what in the world is going on. And as, as he's wanting that and wanting to know that, it says a man, uh, someone who appeared as a man stood before him, which indicates that Daniel knew that this wasn't a man, but he kind of looked like a man. He then hears a voice, which we can assume is God. And the voice says, Gabriel, give this guy, give Daniel an interpretation of the vision. So the one who appeared as a man turns out to be the angel Gabriel. By the way, uh, this is the first place in the Bible where an angel is named by name. i throw that out to you. Um, and so he says, give him an interpretation of the dream. And Daniel gets, I mean, uh, Gabriel gets right to it. And he is specific. In verse 20, the ram which you saw with the two horns represents the kings of Media and Persia. So the, the ram is the Medo-Persian Empire. Comes right out. The ram is the Medo-Persian Empire. Uh, by the way, uh, we read earlier about the two horns. One came up later, but it grew much larger. Uh, you may make a connection if you've been with us through this study. You remember in chapter 7, the Medo-Persian Empire was represented by the bear. You remember that? And it said that the bear was raised up on one side. Y'all remember that? Act like you do, even if you don't. <laughs> It'll make me feel better. The bear was raised up on one side in chapter 7, and we talked about the fact that that, was, that indicated, and we got the same thing here when you got the two horns, then one grows larger. The, the Persian part of the Medo-Persian partnership, and that's really what it was. It was these two uh, nationalities, two nations, these two uh, kings who came together and formed this partnership so that they could defeat the Babylonians. But the Persian one which was a little behind the Medes. The Medes were, were a little bit stronger initially, but the Persian part of it eventually became much stronger, much larger, and absorbed the, the Mede empire into its empire. Daniel accurately predicts that, in both in chapter 7 and then here in chapter 8. So it represents the kings of Media and Persia. And then in verse 21... The shaggy goat represents the kingdom of Greece, and its large horn that's between his eyes is the first king. So the goat represents the Greek empire. And I, we don't, we're not even stretching for that, right? I mean, Gabriel just, he just gives it away. The, the goat, the shaggy goat, is the Greek empire. Therefore, the conspicuous or the large horn was its first king, who we know historically was, I don't know what you said, but it was Alexander the Great. I don't know, it, sounded, it just sounded like, but the, the first king of the Greek empire was Alexander the Great. So, so the conspicuous horn or the large horn is Alexander the Great. Now, folks, the, oh, by the way, I should say this. You may, if you've been with us through this study, you may notice something a little different about this prophecy. You may notice what, that there's something missing in this prophecy. Did you notice it? No mention of the Babylonians here. Did you notice that? In the other visions, in chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar saw four kingdoms, right? And his, the Babylonian Empire, was represented by what? Good. Head of gold. <laughs> I know it's a lot, folks. I know it's a lot. I'm, the, the, in chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar sees the statue. And the head of gold is the Babylonian Empire. In chapter 7, Daniel sees a lion that represents the Babylonian Empire. But in chapter 8, no mention of the Babylonian Empire. Now, I, I really, I can't tell you for sure, but I, I could surmise that for a couple of reasons. First, 
Belshazzar is the last king of the Babylonian Empire. On the, on the timeline of, of God and where he's going with this, he, he's about finished with the Babylonians. They're, they're, they're about to pass away. And, 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 and so there's more of a, a focus on, on where the future is going. But more importantly, I think more importantly, remember at this point, Daniel has switched back to what language? Come on, Hebrew. He switched back to Hebrew. And so the message is primarily for who? The Jews and both the Medo-Persian Empire and the Greek Empire are going to play a significant part in the future of Israel, future from Daniel's time. And we'll get to that. I'll get to more of that next week. So Babylonians are just kind of, they're left out of this. It's, it's about, this vision is about, we're, we're dealing now, we're writing in Hebrew, we're dealing with the nation of Israel. I'm beginning to, to tell you what's going to happen to the nation of Israel as it moves into the last days, and this is what's going to happen. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I, the, the detail and the accuracy of this prediction is, in my opinion, mind-boggling. It's, it's astounding, the accuracy at which Daniel gives this prophecy. Well, what's so astounding about it? Well, for one thing, when Daniel wrote this, the, the Medo-Persian Empire and the Greek Empire didn't even exist. Now, yes, those peoples existed. Those nations existed. And, and by the time Daniel wrote this, the Medes and the Persians probably may have been beginning to show signs of expanding their ter- territory. But the idea of becoming a world empire that would knock off the Babylonians? No way. The Babylonians were strong, they were powerful, and they were big. They were rich. And Daniel said, yeah, they're going to get knocked off. Medes and Persians are taking them out. And then the Greeks are going to take out the Medes and Persians. Well, listen, the Greeks, Daniel writes this at a time when the Greeks are still basically a bunch of city-states fighting among themselves. And the idea that they're going to come together under one great leader and he's going to conquer the entire world... That would be like me predicting that a bunch of sharks are going to get caught up in a tornado and they're going to terrorize the city of Los Angeles. It's crazy. It's crazy. If y'all don't know what I'm talking about, just YouTube Sharknado and uh, you'll, you'll understand. But, 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 it, but I, it, you, he would be laughed at. What? Greek? Greek empire? What have you been smoking? Daniel? But yet he does. He, 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 he with remarkable... Accuracy. And let's, let's just, hey, let's just look at a few more of the, of the details. Uh, notice that the, in there, Daniel says that the, that the ram will go uh, westward, northward, and southward. But there's no mention of eastward. Do you know historically that's exactly what happened in the Medo-Persian Empire? They never expanded to the east in, 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 to any uh, attributable amount at all. Everything went west, it went north, and it went south with the, with the Medo-Persian Empire. Daniel said that would happen. He also predicts the speed at which the, uh, the Greek empire would move. Do you remember, if you're with us in chapter 7, it, they, the Greeks were, were a leopard, and the leopard had not one, but two sets of, of uh, wings on its back, emphasizing speed, swiftness. Here in chapter 8, their feet, this, feet, this goat's feet don't even hit the ground. It's moving so swiftly, and that's exactly what happened. When the Greek empire, when Alexander uh, came to the forefront and began to to conquer, they moved with, with, with swiftness greater than the world had ever seen before. They conquered lands and nations and took over territories faster than anybody had ever seen before. How could Daniel possibly know that? First off, how could he even know the Greeks would come to power, much less the way in which they would come to power? Hmm. Sounds to me like somebody's got the inside track to divine revelation. And he's not even done yet. 
He says that conspicuous horn, and he's going to be, nobody will be able to stand before him, and that's exactly what it was with Alexander. He fit that bill to a T. Listen, they didn't call him the great for nothing. He is still considered today by most historians to be one of the greatest military leaders of all time. But wait, (laughs) he's not done yet. Y'all with me? He's still not done. He says, but listen, no sooner than that that, uh, giant horn will will come up, that conspicuous horn, that it will be plucked out. It, it It will be broken. But four other horns will come up in its place. Well, guess what happened historically? That's right. Alexander died about a month short of his 33rd birthday of a fever. A lot of speculation about exactly how he died, but of a fever. And his kingdom was dispersed to, watch it, four of his, of his generals. It's not, the names aren't given in Scripture. It doesn't matter. He just, he just talks about the four kingdoms, but I'll give them to you just so you can fill in blanks and I'll feel better about it. Uh, there, first, there was uh, Cassander. Uh, second, there was... Uh, Lysimachus, uh, uh, by the way, Cassander kind of took over most of Macedonia and Greece. Lysimachus uh, took uh, Thrace and Asia Minor. Uh, Seleucus took um, the Middle East, what, what would be considered most of the, the, the Middle East, and then uh, Ptolemy, who was given uh, Egypt. Those four horns rose up and took Alexander's, the conspicuous horn, took his throne, took his kingdom. After he was. And just did you notice in the text where it says, but not, I forget exactly how it put it, but it said, it said the four horns rise up, but not as great. That's exactly what happened. The, the Greek empire was never the same after Alexander. It never reached the heights. Now, one of those is going to play a significant part in next week when we're moving on to ch- chapter 8. But the point is, Daniel nails it time after time after time after time. He gets it right every single time. And and, and, if you, and if you have, if you're listening at all and you have a, a, any sense about you, and I'm not trying to insult you or anything, but, but you're sitting there and you're thinking, well, okay then, isn't that case closed? Isn't that a slam dunk for, the God, for God's team? If, if Daniel wrote all these things and got them exactly right, oh, listen, I, and I didn't mention that. I, I, I guess, you, I assume you understand this. But when I talk about Alexander the Great, it's, it's a couple hundred years before Alexander the Great's even going to be born. And Daniel's already talking about his exploits and what will happen to him. But, but, but we ought to be thinking, well, isn't that a slam dunk for God's team? Isn't this thing over? I mean, prophecy, it's accurate, it's, it's right on. This certainly proves that, must prove that God exists because nobody could know that kind of stuff ahead of time except God. And that must prove that, that this is a supernatural book because there's no way it could could have received this information unless it was divinely inspired. Isn't that, isn't that it? Well, you would think so, wouldn't you? <laughs> I mean, that seems rational uh, to me that you would think that. But listen, I, there, there, are, there are people that, of course, as you know, there are people that do not believe in God. There are people that do not believe in the divine inspiration of this book. And I, and I don't want to give the impression that I'm hiding anything from you. So I want you to understand uh, what, what they said. Because, well, you know, if anybody... If you say, I don't believe in God, or I don't believe that this is a special book, and you read that, how are you going to get around that? Well, here's how they get I want you to understand how people get around it or deny it. They simply say it was written after all those events occurred. They just say, yeah, listen, we understand that the guy says his name is Daniel. He says he's writing uh, during the time of, of the Babylonian Empire, and that he is in Babylon in captivity at the time. He's a Jew. That's what he says. But he's lying. 
he's lying, and we know he's lying, and, and this is what you have to understand, folks, and I'm just, this, is, this is just the truth. If, if, you do, if you don't believe in this, you have to start with a premise, and the premise is this. There is no supernatural. You have to start with that premise. There is no supernatural. Everything can be explained naturally. We live in a naturalistic world, so they say, and so everything can be explained away naturally. Since there is no supernatural, this, the writer of this book could not have received this information ahead of time because it would take a supernatural power to do that. And since there is no supernatural power, and since he seems to have firsthand knowledge of the events, this must have actually been written by somebody after all of those empires came and went there. I told you I had a natural explanation. And we, Bible believers, we're the ones that are called unrational. Because listen to me, I want you to understand, there is not a shred, not a shred of historical or textual evidence that would refute that this book was written by who it claimed to be written to when it was claimed to have been written. It's not even, there's nothing. There's no, oh, well, we found this text and it was, no, uh uh-uh, none. But if you don't believe in, if you don't believe that that's supernatural, then you have to say something. And so the natural explanation is he didn't really write it when he did. He's a liar. He didn't really, he wrote it. There was a guy, some guy, his name may or may not have been Daniel, probably wasn't, but he wrote it later. He wrote it after the fact. And I, I understand everybody has to come to the place where they make those decisions and choices for themselves. I'm not asking you to believe something uh, that, that, there, that there's no historical evidence for or that there's, you know, God's idea of faith is not a check your brains at the door kind of faith. I've said that many times before. It is the ability to examine the evidence and come to some conclusions based on that. But I, I have come to the firm conviction and have built my life upon the fact that this is absolutely true and inspired by God and that I can trust it, that I can build my life on it and that if I, if I neglect it, I do so at my own peril. And that if I want power and purpose and, 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 and peace in my life, let's throw another P in there, if I want those kind of things in my life, then I have to be in this book. And if I'm not in this book, uh, it's, it's my own fault if I don't have those things in my life because I believe this is supernatural, divinely inspired, completely accurate, trustworthy record of what God has done, is doing, and will do in the future. And so, and I, I've got a BP squared. I haven't given you a BP squared for a while. And if you're new here, BP squared stands for Big Picture Biblical Principle. The Big Picture Biblical Principle for what we're looking at this morning, and I think I've even used this before, folks. I don't care. It doesn't matter. But it's just this. History is really his story. That's what history is. That we're just, we're looking back. And you understand that. Daniel was looking forward to what hadn't occurred yet. We're looking back historically. Those events the, Medo-Pers- the Babylonian, the Medo-Persian, the Greek, and the Roman, which we haven't got to yet, those empires have come and gone. So we're at an advantage. We can look back. Daniel was looking forward. He couldn't, I don't even know how he could even imagine what he's writing about, but he's writing what God is giving to him. And we can look back and we can say, yes, God is awesome. God nails it every single time. Because remember, if he misses on just one, you can call the whole thing into question. History is really his story. Thanks, Pastor. Well, you heard it. History really is his story. Daniel's remarkable predictions concerning the Medo-Persian and Greek empires prove once again that men may plot and scheme, but God has his plans that will be fulfilled exactly as he has declared. God clearly has the future in his hands, so maybe this is a good time to ask, have you placed your future in his hands? 
We're glad you spent some time with us for this week's Crosswalk. Each week, Pastor Clay opens the Bible and brings out its exciting and practical truths to apply to our everyday lives. Cross Culture Church is a new church in North Raleigh. But instead of religion, we're about relationships. And instead of rituals, we practice realness. We meet Sunday mornings at 1030 at the Leesville Road High School, a mile and a half south of I-540, exit 7. And we welcome anyone and everyone who is looking for a place to learn about God's plan for their life. At Cross Culture Church, we experience the liberating, satisfying, life-changing power of the cross. And it's our desire to bring that power to a culture in need of freedom, hope, and joy. We hope you'll come join us on a Sunday morning. We'll save a seat for you. I'm not the water, I'm not the bread, but I know the place where your soul is fed. So hungry and thirsty, come and be blessed. I want to lead you to the cross. I want to lead you to the cross. I want to lead you to the cross. Cross Culture Church, taking the cross to our culture and taking our culture to the cross. Visit us online at crossculturelife.org.